Grace to you and peace, faith family. It is good to be here. It is good to know that we serve the only one who can. Amen. Last week, we left off with Paul sharing his testimony, if you remember, before a mob while trying to, while they were trying to kill him, and then he was taken into custody where he would have to actually appeal to his Roman citizenship in order to stop the abuse at the hands of the Romans. So just a quick uh, checkup to make sure that we're all present and we're all here. Anybody, anybody get attacked by a mob this week? No? Anybody felt like you got attacked by a mob this week? All right. Uh, so, you know, anybody in prison right now, if you are, you're obviously not here. So I'm, I'm guessing that's not, not happening. So what we can do this week is we can thank God for his grace and the fact that we are not being attacked by mobs or in prison. As a matter of fact, when you come to passages like we're going to do today, Acts 22, by the way, is where you want to head, Acts 22, verse 30. Um, when you come to places like today, sometimes what you begin to think of is, well, um, I'm obviously this isn't for me. I'm not in, in a jail cell. I'm not being attacked by mobs. I'm not a Roman, um, and I'm definitely not in this much trouble. But I, I, I wonder if, if this message has something for us in regards to the fact that um, what happens when your obedience doesn't turn out quite the way you expected it to turn out? How do you deal with that? As, as someone I know used to say, how do, you, how do you deal with them apples? So we are going to awaken. We would have went to sleep with Paul that evening, and we would waken to the following morning. And when we awaken in the following morning, if we were to take a peek, if you will, in our, in our movie, and what we would do is we would see the camera coming into the, uh, to the commander's uh, room, and, and he would be awakened, and he would be, okay, the mob has dissipated, this all whole thing is now, we, the, everything has kind of calmed down, and now he wants to get to the, to the bottom of the situation, what were the charges that are actually filed against this man? I never really got to the bottom of this, he's thinking. So here we are going to have, and this is what I've entitled my sermon, Take Two. Take Two. I want to try it again. Let's try this again. Surely the crowd has calmed down, the emotions have subsided, evening has come, morning is here, and now we are going to get to the bottom of this entire situation. What am I going to do with this, this Roman? Yet, ladies and gentlemen, God's plans for Paul are not in the absence of suffering and accusation. God's plan was that through it, Paul would be able to do what he had called him to do. I want to say that again because I think this is where we find ourselves often. And this is where you can kind of bring your own, um, your own life into this. Because if I were to stand before you today in some church setting where I'm going to tell you that, you know, once you accept Jesus, he is going to bring you health, wealth, and prosperity, the problem I would have is, oh, well, the Bible and, you know, especially Acts 23. What do you do with this? What do you do with it when, if you were the Apostle Paul and you know, and you didn't know this at this time, Paul didn't know this at this time, but this would be the last time, last week, as I said last week, the last time he ever experienced freedom. And from this point forth, due to his obedience to God, he would experience tremendous persecution and never experience freedom again. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that with your theology? How does your theology deal with suffering and accusation? You see, God's plan is often through our suffering and through our accusation and through our pain that we would be able to, as the Bible would declare for us, that we, in the midst of it, would be able to declare the truth of, of all that has been done in Jesus, the Christ. And for many of us, we understand it. God, what are you doing in the midst of all this? Uh, God, where is the rescue? Where's the rescue? And here's what you often discover. And, and faith family, this is where we have got to be very clear in what our theology declares and what our God shows throughout the Bible, throughout his written word, and it is this. What you discover is that often the rescue is to sustain you in the storm, not to remove you from the storm. The rescue is often found in sustenance and not removal. 
Now that, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow because what we're really wanting is we're wanting to be taken out of it altogether. And what God is going to demonstrate through us is, are you able to trust and have faith in me in the midst of it all? Even if you never actually experience freedom. So, let's join Lysias and Paul as we pick up where we left off in take two. Now, most of you may be asking, by the way, before I read this, how do I know this guy's name is Lysias? Well, he's going to write a letter next week. I think we get to that next week. He's going to write a letter, and he actually says, and this is in 2326, Claudius Lysias. So we know this guy's name is Lysias, so I didn't just pick this up out of thin air or some sort of church history idea. It's actually in the Bible. We just haven't gotten there yet, but I like to call people by their name. So let's call him Lysias. So we're in Acts chapter 22, verse 30, and we are going to read verse through verse 11 of Acts 23. Acts 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the council to assemble, assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I had lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of, the, of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And a great dissension was developing. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and King, we have read your word. And now we ask that your word would be a light unto our hearts, a light unto our path, so that, Father, we may be found to be obedient to you as faithful children. <coughs> and Father, if there is one in here who does not know you, our hope and our prayer is that it, they will come to know you before it's eternally too late. Yet, Father, for those of us who are here, who the purpose of this morning gathering is to equip us, equip us for the work of the ministry, then, God, may we leave here with an equipping. May we leave here ready to be your people and faithful in the everyday stuff of life as we look to leave this place and be faithful in it. Bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine on us. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up in verse 30, and what I have here is I call it the commander's desire. The commander's desire. The part of this Roman commander plays in the providence of God really fascinates me. This is kind of a side note if you really sit back and think about it. But I want you to realize that this guy is a Roman commander in a Roman army. He's more than likely, and I would even say highly unlikely, I don't think, I, I think it's, he's not, <laughs> okay, if I could be blunt. I don't think he's a believer. 
I don't think he believes in Jesus. He's more than likely, uh, uh, as being a Roman, he more likely is a Greek in some way, believing in the Roman gods. So if you will, if you will just uh, uh, play the idea of the part with me, here is this Roman commander, Lysias, and he has no clue that he is actually playing a part in what God is doing in the midst of, of all of his will. A man who unknowingly is, is facilitating the very will of God despite his possible thoughts to the contrary. Or even, even which is quite remarkable to me, in the absence of the thoughts of, the, of it entirely, which is very fascinating. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like often when people who want to doubt God's presence in the, in the world and then not understanding that they are, uh, they are facilitating God's will in the midst of doubting his presence. I find that to be, to be fascinating. Regardless, this Roman commander is now in what we would call a pickle, a conundrum, a rather perplexing situation. Because he has a Roman citizen who is a Jew, who is breaking Jewish law, but now being tried in a Roman court. Do you get that? So he is, he's got a lot of moving parts here. What is he going to do with Paul? And to be honest with you, I think that this man starts in the right place. I do think he starts in the right place. He's going to try to discover the actual charges against him. So in the morning, Lysias returns to a gathering of the Sanhedrin, this Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, uh, at least to get the accusation down. He wants to find out, okay, what is actually happening? Because if you remember last week, the mob was kind of confused. And, and if you remember, what we actually came to after he met with the, with the, with the leaders is that he is primarily being compu- uh, accused of three things. Paul is being accused of three primary things. Number one, he is against the people, namely the Jewish people. He is against the law, namely the Jewish law. And he is against the temple, namely the Jewish temple. So... It's kind of perplexing on what this Roman is going to do because this seemed to be a very Jewish problem. Now, there is little historical evidence that this Roman commander, Lysias, would have the authority to actually convene a meeting. He doesn't have the authority to call the Jewish Sanhedrin to a meeting, so it is highly likely that he has a rather important prisoner that would have influenced his idea of calling a meeting among them. So it's not like, in in our terms, that this Roman is going to say, okay, I want the Sanhedrin to be here at 8 o'clock tomorrow, and we're going to figure this thing out. It's more than likely he goes, hey, I have this prisoner, and I'm either going to let him go, or y'all are going to have to make your accusation, so that the Sanhedrin agrees to come together to actually formulate their problems. So it says here that, and and this was kind of an interesting, you notice it's going to say he released him. A lot of pronouns here. Lysias releases Paul. And he orders the chief priests and all the council to assemble. This ordering means to come together if they want to facilitate these charges, and he is going to release Paul. Obviously, obviously I think this is simple. He is not releasing Paul to unmitigated freedom but he is releasing him from the jail cell, from the chains in which he has bound him in, uh, in order to appear for this before the court. So the commander here wants to understand the charges, and there is no better place than before those whom it presumed Paul has offended. And this is some wisdom in the Roman commander's um, idea, the Roman commander's responsibility. Let's find out what these charges are so that I can get to the bottom of this, so that I can get on with my life. Little did he know that in getting on with his life, he was also perpetuating God's will. I love it. So that was the commander's desire. I want to find out what the charges are. And next, we're going to witness the apostles' response. This is going to happen in verses 1 through 10. The apostles' response. Paul seems to waste no time here. He is before this um, council. He is set down and he is set uh, before them. And Paul, it says, and I want you to notice, it says that he is looking intently at the council. 
So Paul seems to waste no time uh, in, in this situation, and he's going to speak into this situation. But have you considered this moment? Have you considered this moment from the perspective of the Apostle Paul? I want to remind you, for years, Paul stood with this body and voted to persecute followers of Christ. Um, if you look at, if we go forward just a little bit, <laughs> in Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 26, verse 10, Paul will say, And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So this idea that Paul, who was once a participant of casting his votes against them and, and, and persecuting followers of Christ, now here he stands as one of the persecuted to be voted on by them. <laughs> it's amazing how the tables have now turned. How once the very man who was going to be the one casting stones is now in threat of, being, of having stones cast. There's a humility in this, is it not, beloved? Uh, for some of you, you, you are unfamiliar with this, but for others of you, you know how it was before you became a believer, how you were, you were antagonistic before those of the faith, and you would cast stones, and you would always come up with ridiculous arguments and now and now that you are on this side of faith the things of the spiritual world that could not be seen by things by people who are unbelievers now you are seeing things in a whole new light and you're going wow wow i can't believe i was that guy no wonder he starts by saying brothers brethren brethren he is referencing their common jewish heritage <laughs> Definitely. I don't think it's any less than that, but I would tell you that I think it's more than that. Because, see, when you look back and you realize that the people who reference this body, this Sanhedrin, it usually begins with rulers of the people or leaders of Israel. So Paul is coming to these guys and he's saying, brethren, and he's not saying, you rulers, you leaders. It's almost as though Paul is coming in and he is providing this assumption that we are on equal ground. You are my brothers. You are no better than me. You are no worse than me. You are my brothers. And in any, any point, to assume this equal ground, to assume any sort of equal ground with people who think they're better than you is always dangerous. Have you ever, you know what I'm talking about. You go before people who are arrogant in pride, and you say, hey, by the way, you are no better than I am, and then the first thing you get is this idea of anger and frustration. How dare you think that you're as good as me? I mean, because look at me. And the reason this is, ladies and gentlemen, is because you always need to remember, weak people in power can't have equality and identity. And we're seeing some of this being worked out in our very governmental realities. Weak people in power cannot have equality in identity. Listen to the modern day politician. I don't care what side, I don't care if it's red or blue, elephant or donkey, I don't care what side it's on. Listen to them. Listen to them ridicule you for your ignorance and your stupidity. Just listen to them. How they're going to come in and you know, they're going to, obviously, you peons need to be told what to do because you can't make wise decisions for yourself. So we're going to come in and prognosticate all the things that you need because you're ignorant. Government to the rescue. Well, we know what happens when government comes to the rescue. We've seen it throughout history. We need to be very careful because this is what we've done, and I think we've done it over and over and over again. And again, this doesn't, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. We are placing weak people in power because weak people in power can't have equality and identity because they're always pride and arrogance. And Paul says, brothers, I have lived my life. I love this. I have lived as a citizen before God with a good conscience. In other words, what Paul is saying, I have nothing in my opinion for which I would see my own condemnation as just. 
but I have been faithful in my conduct in every respect. And I want you to know this, as, as we begin to study this, one of the ways in which Paul comes before these people is he does so with a, what, what the Bible says, quote-unquote, a perfectly good conscience. And I want to tell you that one of the blessed things of your life is to have a perfectly good conscience. That is an absolute blessing. Listen to what Peter says. I want to turn here as, he, as I uh, go a little bit into what it means to have this perfectly good conscience. First Peter, First Peter chapter 1, uh, chapter 3, excuse me. First Peter chapter 3. I love this passage. Verses 14 and 15. Ah, listen to what he says when it comes. Uh, Peter is talking about this, and then think about this in terms of what Paul is going through. 14 and 15, he says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The apologia, right? The, the, the defense of our faith. Now listen what's next. And keep a good conscience. Why? So that, here's the purpose, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Will be put to shame. See, what Paul is doing here is it's almost this backhanded sarcasm. And this I really like. Paul is saying, hey, I'm equal with you. And by the way, I have lived uh, my life with a perfectly good conscience. With a perfectly good conscience. I am innocent. I am innocent before God up to this day. And because I am innocent, and now you are accusing me of something I am not guilty of, you are guilty. You see, it's almost like a backhanded slap. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you know better than me, and by the way, I have a good conscience before God. I have a good conscience before God. And by the way, I think... I think that what I'm saying is demonstrated, I think it at least is validified uh, uh, by the, the reaction of the high priest Ananias. What does it say? The high priest Ananias commanded those standing by him to strike him on the mouth. To strike him. To backhand him. Paul gives him a verbal backhand and the priest gives Paul a physical one. And then Paul's response, I love this, what a nice man. Because that's what we like to make Paul, this nice man. He never, Paul never raises his voice. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Oh well, so much for, so much for Mr. Nice Paul whitewashed wall i got to remember that one by the way to be a whitewashed wall i hope all of you understand what that means it means he is calling this man a hypocrite you are a hypocrite what is the hypocrisy okay to be a whitewashed tomb by the way would mean that you were you would um you would be uh, all these bones all the all the death is inside the inside the tomb but then they would go and paint all the tombs white and so what they would do is basically paint they're they're cleaning up what is dirty on the inside they can't clean so they're going to clean on what's on the outside that's what this idea is this whitewashed wall ah and what is he calling him a hypocrite for we don't have to make it up he actually says, do you, try, do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? So you, what he's saying is, this is actually quite fascinating. Remember, if anyone knew the law, who would know the law? Paul. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. 
And here he is exposing the truth of the high priest's heart. So here is this high priest. He is sitting on the Sanhedrin. He is obviously in a position of immense power. He is adored in all the regalia of his priestly office. He has all these, uh, these tunics and these hats and all the things that he has. While his actions betray the very office of intercession that he had been commanded to hold. There has been no trial. There has been no verdict. You've got to understand what's happening. There has been no trial. There has been no verdict. And this high priest has already facilitated justice and judgment. He had already found him guilty and provided punishment to Paul. He had no legal right to do that. So here was the man who was supposed to be representing the law, who was supposed to be the one man in God's Sanhedrin, in this high court, for God's people to administer justice, and he had administered injustice. And then one of the people there comes, the bystanders it says, and it says, do you revile God's high priest? Do you revile God's high priest? Now, there are three ways that you can look at this, and I believe two of these are primarily valid. I'm going to play with one of these a little bit. But when he says this, I want you to notice there could, there, the, the possibilities is, number one, Paul possibly have been going blind. And he truly didn't even see the high priest. He didn't recognize that this was the high priest that he was talking to because he couldn't actually see. Now, we have some of these ideas, uh, this idea that he was looking intently at the council, but yet he didn't see them, could have indicated to us that maybe Paul was going blind. And by the way, there is indications that this may have been true, because if you remember that when you study Paul's writings, uh, he, he actually references signing his name in what? Big letters. And why would he have to sign his name in big letters? Well, it could mean because... He was going blind, and he was signing his names in, play in ways he can see, because often that's what happens. Blind people have to sign. Um, I was just sitting with one of our church members just a few minutes ago, and he was looking over my iPad, which my sermon is on, and he says, you can read that without glasses, right? He needs it a little bit bigger. He needs, uh, many of you are starting to get Bibles. That's the reason your Bibles are so thick, because the letters are this thick, right? And you have to see, and I get that. I'm not, I'm not admonishing anybody in the room. So that's what could possibly be, that, that Paul is blind. And by the way, one of the arguments behind that also is, you remember in Corinthians when Paul talks about this thorn of the flesh, I have asked for this thorn of the flesh to be removed from me three times. Some people would say that what Paul is speaking about is uh, this messenger of Satan, that, that he is actually talking about blindness, that he is asked to have his sight be brought back to him multiple times. Now, that is, a, that is one of the options, and I wanted to give that to you because I think that that is probably a very valid option. And if you would trust in that, then it is quite possible that Paul is looking at this saying, I, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize it was him. I didn't even, I didn't even know it was, it was this guy. And that's, that's possible. But it could be that Paul is moving from the man Ananias to the office of the high priest, and he is honoring the office regardless of the man which holds it. So here he is saying, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul would say, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. In other words, he is, he is, trying, he is going to respect the office of a high priest without respecting the man who holds the office. Now you've seen this a lot. We often talk about this in the idea of the presidency of the United States. You can respect the office of the presidency without respecting the man who holds the office of the presidency. Right? We, we pray for our governmental leaders. We pray for them. We don't often think that they are all good men. Right? When Paul wrote, by the way, that we should pray for them, I think Nero was kind of over the whole thing. I don't think he was a good man, but yet we are still to pray for them because they hold an office. And we ought to respect that. So that is the second option that you could take from this. <clears throat> but there is a third one, and the third option seems to be a little bit more uh, reasonable for me. So I, <laughs> I would probably say the first or the third, 
And the third option is that Paul is responding with an ironic sarcasm. It's similar to Paul saying, oh, this is the high priest. I didn't recognize him because he wasn't acting like a high priest. Because if he was acting like a high priest, then he obviously wouldn't have hit me like that. He wouldn't have had commanded me to hit like that. But he did command for me to hit, be hit like that. I wasn't aware that he was actually a high priest because it's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And if he was a high priest, if he was acting like a high priest, I obviously wouldn't have spoken about him like that, right? Paul demonstrates for us and he demonstrates to this council his awareness of the law because this idea that you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people actually is a direct quote from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. So however you want to interpret that, that is up to you. But I do know that somehow in some way Paul is responding to this idea that this man is acting in a way that probably he should not have been acting. And then Paul makes a, perspe- a perceptive plea. A perceptive plea. He perceives the Sanhedrin is made of Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, how does he perceive this? We don't know. If he's blind, it's going to be hard for him to see it. If he's not blind, then he's going to be able to perceive it based upon probably the way we can tell who the Democrats and the Republicans are. All you got to see is who claps at what, right? Who speaks about what? Where are the scoffs and the, and the things that happen? I don't know this for certain, but for somehow, Luke, uh, uh, Luke writes that he perceives that some of them are Pharisees and some of them are Sadducees. What we do know is that what Paul, <laughs> what Paul does, does here is he gets to the root of the problem which divides even the accusers themselves. Now he's going to get to the root of why everybody here is upset. He says, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And then what does he say? I am on trial for one thing. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Who resurrected from the dead? None other than the Jesus. And because now he is declaring that Jesus has risen from the dead, this is what the main problem is. It's, it has nothing to do with the law. It has nothing to do with the people. It has nothing to do with the temple. It has with do with the fact that I believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, which, by the way, if he did resurrect from the dead, has everything to do with the law, everything to do with the people, and everything to do with the temple. Yes? Yes. So this is what we have going on here. And Luke records, as he said that, the dissension between the two groups was divided, Because the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. What a a brilliant idea. What a a brilliant thing. You know, I've done this before. Um, I've used this tactic before when I have sat amongst, um, let's say, people who are not so nice. It doesn't take long before you get not so nice people to argue with one another. And when you can do that, the heat kind of gets taken off of you, right? You know what I'm saying? It's going to happen with our modern-day politics. (laughs) I've often wondered, I was walking through the Seafood Festival, and this thought was going through my mind. I often wonder how liberals can get along. Because they hold philosophies that disagree with one another. For instance, I want to give you an example of this. I want to give you an example, because I think that this is politically disconnected. For instance, um, some of the liberals nowadays, they want to, they want to uh, encourage women rights. You know, feminism, feminism. We want women to have their rights, and we're strong feminists. But we're also for transgenderism, which is against feminism, because we want men to be women and women to be men, but we don't believe in gender. We believe gender is fluid, but we still stick up for women if they're if they're women, but are they women or are they men? I don't know. So it's eventually going to come to a head, right? This is eventually, somebody on the liberal side is going to have to disagree. 
somebody's going to have to disagree because you can't continue to hold these. Right now they have a common enemy, right? Us conservatives, right? Those, those who actually believe that there are only two genders by birth and sex and gender are the same thing and we only have hold these two things. And it's going to come to a head where this is going to be a problem. Now, right now, they're both opposed to those of us who are conservative, but that's going to change. History, is, history shows us this. History shows us this over and over and over and over. Anyway, getting back and getting off of the politics of this, the important part here is uh, it is a tactful way for Paul to take the heat off of him, whether it is, was intentional or not. Paul has brought to the forefront an issue that separated all of them. The Pharisees didn't care that Paul is headed to an entirely different direction than they anticipated. They, now the Pharisees really are, are, don't care about this whole idea that Paul actually is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection is now the issue, and the resurrection is what Paul consistently always brings everyone back to. Ladies and gentlemen, because Paul would say if Christ didn't rise from the dead, he said we are the most to be pitied because we are still in our sins and without salvation. I want to keep this clear to you. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, it does not remove your justice before God. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are the most to be pitied because we are still in our sins and we are still unjustified. Because Jesus' resurrection if Jesus didn't resurrect, excuse me, then none of our works matters. But if Jesus didn't resurrect, it doesn't remove our guilt or our sin before God. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection for it was the very foundation for their hope. As a matter of fact, I can point you to this all throughout the scriptures. Go back throughout the book of Acts and I want you to pay close attention. Pay very close attention because what we will find out and what you'll discover is that the Pharisees had a very high hope for resurrection. They believed in resurrection. And I believe that this is exactly the truth that made the opportunities for many of the Pharisees like Paul to become believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And I believe that's the reason that it was less challenging because actually Pharisees believed in a resurrection. And Jesus' ability to resurrect would turn us back to that. Uh, let me give you an example. Acts chapter 15, verse 5. Acts chapter 15, verse 5. And it says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So it was, seems to be for me that it was seen that the Pharisaical idea, uh, the Pharisaical background seemed to provide more of a foundation for belief than even the Sadducean background. And I think that this is what would probably make this true. Now, let me speak about what we are talking about missiologically. What Paul is doing missionally here is Paul is perceiving a space in order to present the gospel to those who are there. What we would, the words we would use in our faith family and what we have used for a while, is that Paul is able to perceive a space to be able to share the gospel in a way that some inside of his audience are able to hear because Paul is gospel fluent. Because he knows how the gospel speaks into their situation, into their belief, because remember, he identified with them and he was able to speak into that. And so he understands that the resurrection of Jesus provides a great opportunity for the gospel to be presented. And at this point in Jewish history, the Pharisees are in the minority of the Sanhedrin because it is now going to be dominated by the Sadducees. So the majority vote would follow, fall to the Sadducean party and not the Pharisaical party. Now I want to I take a moment as, as God is just uh, really revealing some things here inside of this that when I begin to speak about this idea of gospel fluency, I think this is what makes God's, the way in which we understand the gospel so powerful in our mission. Because we are able to see things and hear things that people speak about, and we are able to bring the gospel to bear. 
For instance, one of the things that have happened in our life recently, as most of you know, is we've suffered a death in our family. And you know, this has brought up a tremendous opportunity for me to share the gospel with many people. Because they come to me and they go, hey, I heard you, uh, it happened to me at Chick-fil-A just the other day. Hey, I heard, that, uh, I heard that you had lost a loved one in your family. Yes, we're praying for you. Well, thank you. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yes. What do you think happens? What do you think happens after we die? By the way, if you want a great missional question to ask people, that's a great missional question. Because you open up so many doors. Well, I don't know. I think we all go to heaven. All of us? So there's no justice? Everybody goes to heaven? Well, yes. I said, where did you get that? And we continue to have this conversation. And I tell you this to say (laughs) that if you're not aware of what the gospel is, you're not going to be able to bring the gospel to bear on the everyday stuff, everyday conversations of life. Like, for instance, I had someone uh, about two weeks ago come to me, unbeliever, unbeliever, and we were having this conversation, and, uh, and they were, we were not talking about the gospel, but again, I bring the gospel to bear because of gospel fluency into these situations, and, and I remember them coming to me, and they said something of this nature, well, that's not fair. And I was able to have a fantastic gospel conversation around fair. What do you mean that's not fair? Where do you get the idea of fair? What is fair? Where did you get that idea? Well, I believe in morality. Well, where did you get that idea? And continue to progress through and continue to try to understand where they're coming from in an effort to understand what their worldview is and an effort to be able to present a better worldview or the best world, the only worldview that's going to make sense of this world, which is the gospel. Does that make sense to everybody? And you wonder why. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the idea of reading the Bible from, from uh, 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 verse by verse and chapter by chapter and preaching on these things like this is so that we can get a, a good diet of the Bible so that we are gospelly fluent in the everyday stuff of life. The reason I don't teach you a five-step road to witnessing to people is because I don't know about you, but I ain't never met somebody who fits in the five-step road. It always seems to be there's some kind of wonky stuff, right? You can start talking to people about Jesus, and next thing you know, you're talking about dinosaurs. Talking about people about the resurrection, next thing you know, you're talking about um, why is there so much evil in the world, Right? And if you're not gospelly fluent because you are not uh, familiar with the gospel, you're not familiar with the writings of the scriptures, you're not going to be able to handle those conversations. And that's what Paul is able to do here. And I love it. I think this is what Jesus was speaking of when he said that you must be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. So that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. At this point, again, I want to remind you, the Pharisees are in the minority, the Sadducees are in the majority, and the Sadducees uh, group rejects any concept of the resurrection. Now, you may ask why. I would encourage you to go back and study the Pharisees and the Sadducees and see where these two groups come from. You will notice that most of the Gospels are about the Pharisees, and then after the Gospels, we begin to talk a lot about the Sadducees. Something happens in this time frame where the Sadducees begin to take over and the Pharisees lose their power. And then you're going to begin to see this happen. You can go back and study that historically for yourself, and I would encourage you to do that. But what we do know is that this group of Sadducees, they reject any concept of resurrection, mainly due to the fact that they only accept the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible. That's all they accept as the Bible. And because that's all they accept as the Bible, there is nothing in those five books that would point them to a resurrection of the dead. There are many assumptions here about what it is the, the Sadducees actually reject, especially in regards to what Luke writes. They, there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So there are assumptions here. It could be, the eschatology of the Pharisees, right, which includes this supernatural hierarchy of angels and demons 
Or it could be the rejection that they could speak through people, that angels actually speak or demonic possession was possible. Or it could be the rejection of an afterlife in any sort of spiritual form. We really don't know what it is they specifically reject. Whatever it is, it is clear that this divides the court. And Luke records for us that a great Uh, that occurred a great uproar in verse 9, a great dissension in verse 10. So basically what Paul did is he lit a match and he is blowing this thing up. He lit a match and it is blowing this entire thing up. And then, in a rather ironic statement, the Pharisees seem to come to Paul's defense. Verse 9, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Huh. Well, if that ain't something. This is going to get fun. Some of the Pharisees said we find nothing wrong. And ladies and gentlemen, this is where we would get out our popcorn and have a seat and just watch and see what happens. Now, we would. Paul wouldn't, and I'll show you why in a moment. Because Paul is about to get stretch from one end to the other and this is not figurative this is literal he's about to get stretched by the way i do think this is luke's way of revealing at least in part the main challenge here is that the sadducees can't believe that any angel has spoken to paul because there are no angels now you would ask me where did i get this idea turn back with me to luke chapter 22 verse 17 Luke chapter 22, verse 17. This is Paul. Listen to what Paul says. I think this is what really, uh, can I say ticks off, makes them mad? I just said it. So this is what ticks off the, the Sadducees. Verse 17 of 22, it says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in, no one, that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watched out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Did you get that? Now what happens in verse 22? What happens in verse 22? 22 verse acts sorry let's go back to acts acts 22 i apologize acts 22 i i meant to say luke wrote luke wrote acts sorry acts 22 paul you remember this is right when paul is going to paul is defending himself before these very people and this is what he said. He says, it happened when I tur- returned to Jerusalem and was praying. I saw I, in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me. So he had this vision from God, right? And then in verse 21, it says, go for I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. What happens in verse 22 of chapter 22 of the book of Acts? They listen to him, to his statement, and then they raise their voice away with him for he should not even be allowed to live. What would make the Sadducees so mad? I think we're starting to get the picture. It's starting to build. The Sadducees are mad because Paul is saying he had a vision from an angel, and the Sadducees didn't even believe in angels, didn't believe in visions, didn't believe in the afterlife of the resurrection. So there's no way that this could be true. There it is. And this dispute gets so heated that the commander Lysias has to send in the troops, so the Bible says so that Paul would not be what? Torn in to pieces. That's what it says. In the words of one of my favorite actors, things are about to get a little bit rowdy. And Lysias originally arrested Paul and put him in jail, and now he's going to rescue Paul and put him in jail. Can you imagine what's going through Lysias' mind? What in the world is going on? But can you imagine what must be going through the mind of the apostle? What would Paul be thinking? What would you be thinking? 
Remember, ladies and gentlemen, the Lord had prepared him for this. The Lord had told him this is what is going to happen. How do we know that? Thank you for asking. Remember in his farewell to Ephesians at Miletus? We read this last week. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 18. When the, these are the elders of Ephesus. When they had come to him, he said to them, Paul said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was going to be with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, listen, bound by the Spirit, I, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bond and afflictions await me. What about the warning of Agabus in Acts chapter 21, verse 10? Acts chapter 21, verse 10. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul, Paul's belt and bound his feet and his hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owned this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He had already warned him this is what's going to happen. And here, I wonder, ladies and gentlemen, what could Paul be thinking? What would you be thinking? I've been obedient. I'm, I'm gospelly fluent. I'm speaking the truth in love. I'm doing all the things that you have told me to do, God. And here I am, bound, almost torn in pieces again. I for sure thought I was going to get released this time. You released me in the past. I thought for sure, and here I'm sitting in prison. I know you told me I was going to get bound and sent to the Gentiles. Here I am sent to the Gentiles. Now what? I'm in the hands of these Romans. What are you up to, God? What are you up to? And Luke writes, The night immediately following, the Lord stood, his, stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. I do wonder if Paul may have been considering this is it. You see, God had told me that I was going to be bound. He told me I was going to have to testify. He told me I was going to be sent to the, sent to the uh, Gentiles. He 